scripture text this morning is Matthew 8, 1 through 17. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded, for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion uh, came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the satyrian Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve. That evening they brought him to many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Israel. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I want to read something before I mess it up because I usually mess things up when I uh, spur the moment so I have a little blurb I have here some of you guys don't know about the um, Reformation Society most of you guys probably do know about it but um, even before that we've known Ken Beaton uh, through ECF and he's just been a great asset to that church and I'm so glad I finally get to hear him preach here at this church I've heard him before but uh, here at this pulpit uh, is going to be good, good to hear that. But um, Ken is a part, a major part of that Reformation Society uh, of Western New York. Of, and it's, uh, today is an actual pulpit exchange of the different pastors that are uh, included in that. I don't regularly attend, but I have been able to attend recently uh, a few of them. And it's just a wonderful time for... Uh, pastors to just connect and dig in deep to theological truths. And so I, I commend uh, the Reformation Society and I pray that God will continue to uh, sharpen iron uh, with these guys as they continue to meet. But it meets with guys and lay leaders over 100 miles around western New York. That's huge. I mean, that's, that's a big thing. It's a big asset, a big help for pastors in this area. And uh, again, like I said, Brother Ken has been a, a major part of that since the beginning. But he is a faithful member, uh, ordained member 
uh, ordained elder of uh, Evangelical Church in Fairport. And uh, Ken is one of uh, Pastor Dave's great friends. Um, of course, I have to mention this. I don't want to, but Ken is a fellow Canadian. So I got that going for him. Um, but he's a great source of encouragement, just not because he comes from the Holy Land, uh, but mainly because, like, you know, every Sunday he offers uh, a, an encouragement, a text to Dave. And um, it, it's just a privilege to have, you know, Ken here with us. Too bad Ken can't, or uh, Dave can't be here, but I'm sure Dave will listen uh, online afterwards. But we're glad to have Ken here. Ken, if you want to uh, bring God's word to us, and I'll just stop muttering along here so speak clearly for us not me well good morning you know we've had such a great time so far this morning we could just have a coffee and go have some fellowship and we'd be well fed but i am thankful for this opportunity to be able to be with you this morning i've been with uh i've been here many times but this is my first time that i uh have been able to preach, and indeed it is a privilege to stand be- behind this pulpit where I know that the Word is preached faithfully, it is preached uh, with integrity, and it is an honor to be able to to be able to be part of that. And greetings from our church, Evangelical Church of Fairport, uh, where I've been there. I've been associated with that church since 1989. Um, uh, became a member in 96, but we, uh, we definitely cherish your fellowship. We cherish the fact that we're, we're like-minded churches, and, uh, and as I like to say from an old Bill Gaither song, I love the thrill that I feel when I get together with God's wonderful people. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is a narrative. That is to say, it's a tale, but in this case, it's a true accounting of events witnessed by Matthew. It's not an epistle. It's not a letter. It is a, it is a narrative. It is a gospel. And so we have to read it in that sense. We can't read it as though we are reading uh, through the, the epistle to the First Corinthians or Ephesians. It is a different type of literature altogether. It is a proclamation about Jesus and his rule and works. Now, the gospel writers all have a certain theme that they structure their gospel around. Matthew was driving home to the Jews that Jesus was a Messiah. Mark probably aimed at the Roman Gentile audience who valued great deeds. And as you would read Luke's gospel, you would understand that his listeners were most likely Greeks by displaying Jesus as the perfect man. And as you would turn your pages forward to the Gospel of John, you would see that John's target was to convince folks that Jesus was the Son of God. So then, Matthew, being a Jew himself, structures his Gospel with elements to persuade the Jewish readers and hearers that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And this is why he begins with the genealogy, because roots are important. There's much esteem in who your ancestors are in the Jewish society. His gospel also alludes to many messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. 
Twelve times Matthew cites Old Testament prophecy in conjunction with the term fulfilled or other phrases like that it might be fulfilled or it was fulfilled. Now just briefly let me point some things, some of these references out to you. In Matthew 1.22 and Isaiah 7.14 you have with, with Jesus is born of the virgin and it's the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then Matthew 2.15 was Hosea 11 verse 1 Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Matthew 2.17 is tied with Jeremiah 31.15 where the prophet Jeremiah is saying he heard a great cry from Rachel. And this was over the slaughter of the, of the children in Bethlehem by the Roman soldiers. So in our passage this morning, we will see another tie with the Old Testament as we dive into the text. Now the Sermon on the Mount served as his platform as to what his kingdom would, would, would look like, that meaning Jesus, and the citizens who would inhabit his realm and Matthew has been drawn out two aspects of Christ from the very beginning of his gospel. First, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And secondly, that he's the promised King. The revelation of the saving rulership of Jesus Christ. So Matthew is driving home that Jesus is the Savior, but he's also the King. But more to the point, he's the ruling saving king or the saving ruling king so it's no accident therefore that the miracles found in chapters 8 and 9 follow the sermon on the mount the miracles serve as a consummation of his message that the kingdom of God is at hand now as I read and prayed and pondered upon this text it became obvious to me that for us to understand these 17 verses, we must let them speak for themselves. In other words, let Matthew tell the story for us. I don't need to interject anything. I'm just going to let the story unfold before you and let them speak for themselves. Let the story that Matthew is telling unfold naturally. Martin Luther often quipped about preaching in this manner. I must do nothing but let the word do it all. So with this in mind, let Matthew testify to what this ruling Savior is like. And for those of you who are taking notes, our first point is that Matthew describes for us a king who is not out of touch with his people. Matthew describes for us a king who is not out of touch with his people. And you'll see those through verses 1 through 16. Now verse 1 says, When Jesus came down from the mountain. It's important for us to grab a hold of that because Jesus did not stay on the mountain, nor did he retreat to an ivory tower. Unlike us, when we experience a great spiritual uh, experience where we, where we are in the presence of God, we don't want to leave that place. We want to stay there. We want to enjoy it to the fullest. 
which Jesus put forth to us that those experiences, as important as they are, we must share them with the world. We must come down from our mountain and begin to minister to the people. Jesus didn't make grand pronouncements from some castle or some ivory tower. He was a man of the people. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. The crowds were drawn to him because he was approachable, unlike the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as far as they could stay away from people, the more they liked it. Not with Jesus. Jesus mixing in with the crowds was the very thing that drove the Pharisees mad. They just couldn't understand that Jesus would actually understand or, or want to sit down and have a meal with those who are not in their class, one who is not a part of their society, one who they say they're sinners and publicans. In Mark 2.6 it says, they say, or rather charge Jesus, why do you eat with the sinners and the tax collectors? They couldn't wrap their minds around that. They just couldn't find a category to which Jesus would say this was the whole point of his ministry. I have come for those who need a savior. Those who are sick need a physician. They need a doctor, not those who are well. And of course, in John 17, we hear Jesus saying in verse 18, Father, you sent me into this world. So how was this in-touch ministry displayed? Well, in verse 2, you see that Jesus is approached by a leper. And if we're not careful, we can miss the very point of the encounter. In verse 3, Jesus reached out and touched the leper. Jesus frequently touched those whom he healed. And you can see that in Matthew 9, verses 25 and 29. Lepers, as you know, were considered unclean to be shunned, not touched by anyone. So I ask you this morning, put yourself in the leper's shoes. Imagine his life to be shunned, to not be touched by anyone. You're alone and you're separated from family and you're living death before everyone. Everyone knows the end game of your condition. You're going to die. The attitudes of some rabbis toward a leper was, when I see a leper, I throw stones at him lest they come near me. Well, thankfully, Jesus Christ did not throw stones at me to keep me away when I was suffering so greatly and am still suffering from the leprosy of sin that he touched me. He touched me and he made me whole. The leper, the centurion, and the Peter's mother-in-law needed compassion, not condemnation. In verses 2 through 15, we are witnessing people who are in a tough spot, in a need of mercy. The centurion had a servant who was like a son to him, and Peter's mother-in-law was suffering from a fever. 
Now the general definition of compassion is a sympathy, a concern for the sufferings of others and a desire to alleviate such suffering. The Hebrew and the Greek words speak to the act of having mercy or being moved with sympathetic mercy. So Matthew, in this context, in this display of Jesus' compassion, he draws us in closer. He draws us in and says, look at this, listen to this. He draws us in to listen to the conversations of the leper and the centurion. The leper says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the response by this ruling Savior is so strikingly tender. I am willing and touched him. There's nothing more soothing than being touched with compassion and sympathy. Compassion is the willingness to go the extra mile in order to be merciful. In verse 7, Jesus so overwhelms the centurion by saying, I will come and heal this servant. Though Jesus ends up speaking the word of healing, the centurion is floored by the generosity of this Jewish rabbi. He says, what? You? You're going to come to my house? You're going to come to a place of a Gentile? A centurion? A ruling occupation officer? You're going to come to my house? He was so overwhelmed by that. He was so humbled by what Jesus was willing to do. Now Jesus didn't know this man nor the servant, and yet he was willing to personally alleviate the pain and the suffering. So I ask you, does this sound like a God who was cold, indifferent to the sufferings of the people of this world? Does this sound like what some people would propose, that God is a deity who just created this world and wound it up and sent it out and said, well, we'll see you on the other side. I don't want anything more to do with you. No. No, we see a God who is very much in touch with his own creation, in touch with the people, in touch with compassion and sympathy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This Roman centurion was merciful to a slave, a nobody in his society. And in so doing, he reaped mercy. So it's a lesson to us to pay attention a bit more to the people we meet. When you see the kids around in the lunchroom eating by themselves, why are they eating by themselves? Or that, or that co-worker that just doesn't seem to rub people the right way. You know them. Or you, you see people around you that may need a touch of sympathy. They may need somebody with compassion. Without even you asking. Without even you in really invading their space. But you're there. And they know you're there. In verse 14, we see mother, Peter's mother-in-law down with a fever. As you look at the text in Matthew, Matthew's not given a whole lot of detail for us. But in Mark's gospel, it's recorded that Simon, Andrew, James, and John informed him of the condition. 
Luke says that the disciples appealed to him on her behalf. And when our loved ones are sick, do we not look for sympathy in our situation? Do we not want people to care? Aren't we lifted up when we know that people saying, how are things going? What can I do? It makes that burden a little less. And it gives us a coping mechanism. There's no record of the disciples actually asking Jesus to heal the woman, but Jesus does anyway. And as Matthew tells you, there he goes again. He touched her. He touched her on the hand and raised her. There he goes, being a man of the people again. There he goes, going where no man wants to go in that society, who's considered holy, who's considered a rabbi, who's considered more than just one of the people. Jesus heals this woman. And this led me to think about God's compassion in a new light. Garden of Eden, how many times have we read that? How many times have we had it rehearsed to it that Adam partook of the fruit, of the forbidden fruit? And then they hid themselves. And then God came. There is no record, there's no record that Adam asked for a covenant of salvation. That is to promise seed. But it had, God had it all planned out. Ahead of time, before the foundation of the world. True compassion, God's compassion, was ready to meet the need without being asked. I don't remember before I was saved asking for a savior. It never crossed my mind. As mixed, as messed up as I was, and as things you don't even want to know about, I never once asked for a savior. But he came to me. He came to me. He touched me. He healed me. He delivered me. This is to God. This is to Christ that I'm that is Matthew is displaying. I never asked for God to provide a Savior, but I'm glad in his mercy he did. Romans 5, 8, But God shows his mercy for us in that while we were yet sinners, not while we were yet friends, but sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, the saving, ruling Savior is not, is, is so in touch with his creation, he's willing and able to meet their needs in spite of sin. The Father sent his Son to put on man's flesh to be in touch with the most personable and compassionate ways. These miracles are not the mindset of a distant deity. They're acts of, of a God we need, loving enough to be involved, caring enough. I'm remembering of 1 Peter 5 where he tells us, pray to the Lord for he cares for us. This leper comes to him and said, if you're willing, 
if you care. And Jesus says, I do, I will. Nancy Guthrie says, Surely God wanted to live among his people in a more accessible way, in a way that people could see him and come close to him. I'm glad we have a Savior like that. I'm glad we have a ruling Savior. Secondly, he's the ruling Savior King with ruling power. You see that in verses 16 and 17. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now this is quite a claim for Matthew to make. Verse 17 is tied to Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet he, as we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. His Jewish readers would automatically tie this with the Messiah. Immediately their minds would go, only one person can do this. And that's our Messiah, the king that we're waiting for. So Isaiah 53 verse 4 is incremental in understanding how Matthew pitched the miracles performed by Jesus. If there's one thing the Jews were staunched, was no room for negotiation, it was the Torah. Matthew was careful to craft a narrative to keep Jesus from being viewed as a rebel with no regard to the law. And we see in verse 4, which, where Matthew records Jesus saying, And Jesus said to him, meaning the leper, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. Now remember with me what Jesus says in, Ma in chapter 5 of Matthew. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. So the motivation to send a leper to the priest was found, if you care to, look in Leviticus chapter 14, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. Jesus cleansed the leper. He shall be brought to the priest. You see, this worldly notion of Jesus being a rebel, sticking it to the man, being a, a, an outlaw, being a maverick, being one unto himself, it's just pure nonsense. Jesus was nothing of the kind. He didn't purposely go around antagonizing the rulers of Israel for sport. After all, it was Christ who wrote the law in the first place. We can't forget that. That Jesus, being God, he wrote the word so he would not do anything that would violate his own word. His love for his own word and holiness would not allow him to sin against his own law. Unlike our political leaders, the Lord does not make laws that are for thee, but not for me. He's governed by his law. He's governed by his holiness. He's governed by what he has spoken by. 
And we cannot forget the reason for Matthew's gospel. It is to convert his Jewish brethren to Christ. These miracles would serve as a witness to the messianic mission of Jesus, to be the conqueror of disease. Look in Psalm, uh, Psalm 103, verse 3, he sent his word to heal all your diseases. Psalm 107, verse 20, he sent his word and healed them. Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for water spread forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In Luke 4 we have Jesus quoting Isaiah 61 and he says to them in your hearing this has been fulfilled but wait there's more than this that was done before Jesus went to the cross Jesus didn't have to go to the cross to get this power he possessed the power already Jesus demonstrated his power he possessed at the kingdom of the Jews before he was killed. So in the heart of Matthew is the desire to broaden there in our horizons as to who Jesus truly is and the nature of his mission. You see, sickness and sin were one and the same in the Jews' mind, and it would take a spiritual deliverance by the Messiah to unveil his true kingship. And so Matthew applies Isaiah 53.4 to a non-redemptive application to express the totality of the life and ministry of Christ. The ruling king and savior would have the power to heal both the body and the soul. The one that they had been waiting for was right in their sight. Their deliverer had come. And Matthew was unfolding that for us. The same strategy that Matthew used can be utilized to bring folks to a saving knowledge of Christ. We can still say to the world that he is a healing savior. We can still say to, the, to those who are bound that he is a deliverer. And we can say in the same sentence without blushing that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruling Savior in which you need in your life. And this is what Matthew was doing. He was utilizing such a great evangelistic strategy. And thirdly, we see the ruler's king's unlikely recipients of grace. And that's your third point. The unlikely recipients of grace. You know, the more I read the word, I'm amazed of how ironic God is. When Isaiah says God's ways are not our ways, it's not a hyperbole, it's the truth. 
Irony is a literary device used by a writer to express the disparity between what is and what is actually so. But maybe what it is that I'm actually want to expose is just sense of humor displayed in God's acts. But in any case, the point remains, God does not act, nor does he make choices that are predicated on man's way of doing things. You know, when he created the heavens and the earth, he had the gall not to consult man or form a committee or have some sort of poll as to how the world should be created. He created it. In six days, he created it. Amazing that. And he didn't even ask our permission to do that. You see, the account of Matthew puts us in direct contact with the king's most unlikely recipient of his grace. However, maybe not. After reading the Beatitudes or the, or the 12 men he chose to serve alongside him for three years. Picture with me, would you? Jesus goes along and he calls Levi, Matthew, the tax And then a little while later, he gets Simon the Zealot. We'll talk about polar opposites. Imagine these two serving along one another. Here we have a man who was stealing from his people, and we have another man who wanted to kill anybody who was doing that. And yet the irony and the humor of, of Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector being together in the same room when we well know that left to themselves outside of Christ, Matthew, or Matthew's throat would be slit by Simon in a, in a blink of an eye. He wouldn't even think about it. And yet, this is what God does. His ways are not our ways. Look around you this morning. We are gathered together because... Why? We're all from different walks of life. I'm from the other side of the tracks. I'm one of those guys you didn't want in your neighborhood. But here we are. God's sense of humor that we're together. We're praying together. We're singing together. And I have the opportunity to be able to share God's word. That's God's way. See, this... Matthew 8 introduces us to three people. We don't even know their names, only status. A leper, a centurion, and a woman. All of these folks are outcasts, insignificant, unseen people of their society. So then, why does Matthew say Jesus even bothered with them? Well, first, let's look at the, at the leper. Unlike the rich young ruler, he had nothing. He had no riches nor prestige. He was an outsider by every intent of the word. These folks smelled of rotting flesh. They repelled people. And leprosy in that day was incurable. And people endured a hopeless existence. He lived alone, and most likely he would die alone. Such folks were in no position to demand anything, and this leper was not demanding Jesus to heal him. He was begging him with all humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
Jesus touched the leper to demonstrate that all classes of people are welcome into his kingdom. You, me, all those outside of Christ, regardless of class, have an incurable disease, and like the leper, they are dead men walking. Sin makes every man an outsider to the kingdom of God, but the cure is still the same, Jesus the Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're a president or a pauper. There's no classes in the kingdom of God. And Matthew is pointing that out. Those who would humble themselves like the leper will find mercy from a very willing sovereign. And then the next person we see is a centurion, a Gentile. Some speculate that he was a Samaritan. Well, that would even ramp things up even more, wouldn't it? That he was drafted into the Roman army. But it is interesting to note that every mention of a centurion in the scripture is positive. But there was great prejudice toward them by the Jews for being a Gentile and an occupying force in their country. But the humility of the centurion is striking, is it not? Here's a man who'd seen war. He's commanded hundreds. He had fought hand-to-hand on the battlefield. And yet, he is completely floored. And he comes in deep humility to Christ. He feels so unworthy to even address Jesus in person, but through an envoy, as the other Gospels tells us. But what's even more remarkable is that the centurion's intercessors are Jews. But even with these oddities, there's a greater point Matthew is making. The faith of the centurion. To say the least, Jesus is impressed. He says, truly, in all of Israel, I have not found or seen such faith as this man. Well, here's the point, or the irony, I should say. Unlike what the Jews thought, you didn't have to be a Jew to have faith in the Messiah. There are no nationalities in the kingdom of God. Only people who have chosen to believe the gospel. Jesus is the Messiah, and all those who believe shall be saved. And verses 11 and 12 of chapter 8 correlates with Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Let me read that for you. And Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They're tied together in this sense. Hell is not a doctrine used to frighten unbelievers, but a warning to those who think themselves as believers. We have a ton of people in this land who think that they're believers, and we need to warn against that. 
The Pharisees could only see a kingdom for Jews alone, whereas Jesus saw his kingdom for all nations who would believe him. We must be careful not to limit access for salvation from those we think unworthy. All those who will believe are welcome to the king's table. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The gospel is open to all. The most respectable sinner has no claim on it than the worst. Hallelujah. So the third outcast of Jewish society is in this setting was a woman. Now you may have heard this many times, but in the morning the Pharisees would start his day by saying, I thank thee that I am not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Lepers, Gentiles, and women were of the same class, outcasts. The testimony of a woman was not acceptable in court, and they were dependent upon men for their well-being. Now I would counter that the Pharisees missed the whole point of the creation passage. Women were not to be treated poorly or as property, but as a helpmate. But somehow that conveniently got forgotten, but I digress. Let me hear back. But this incident not only demonstrates the power of Jesus to heal people instantly, but also this truth. God is not a respecter of persons. Hallelujah. He's not a respecter of persons. He does not discriminate against lepers, a class, or Gentiles, a nationality, or a woman, a gender. The gospel ministry of Jesus Christ can be experienced by everyone. And this is the whole point that Paul is bringing across in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. Christ in one stroke established the brotherhood and abolished the distinctions. Hallelujah. That you don't have to be a part of a certain class, you don't have to be of certain nationality, and you don't have to be discriminated against because you might be the wrong gender. In Christ, the field is level. At the cross, we are all one in Christ. And here's an, another irony. A woman's testimony was considered irrelevant. But who was the first evangelist of the gospel? A woman. And why was a woman? Because the men were too afraid to go to the tomb. Well, as anything, this is funny, at least to me. And one commentator suggested this about Peter's mother-in-law being healed. Matthew emphasized this healing to serve as a catalyst for more healings. Good news travels fast in a small town. How do I know that? I grew up in a very small town, and all you had to do was tell a certain individual, and all the whole town would know exactly what was going on. Good news travels fast in a small town, and once the news of the healing began to be spread, it would draw across. And once we spread the word in this small town of Danville, hallelujah, we can see a big difference for the kingdom of God. Well, let's wrap this up. Matthew's account of the three miracles underscores why we need a Savior who is also the ruling king. On display is why people of all ages need this Messiah he proclaimed 
because the law was unable to save just as it was powerless to heal. The law could define sickness and health, but it could not produce health. The law could only condemn, and ultimately it could not redeem. So Jesus, on the other hand, is able to heal the body and the soul. He possessed the authority to forgive sins. Jesus can touch sick people without becoming unclean because his touch heals us. And here lies the greatest irony of all. In Hebrews 13, verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And what's the irony? Our ruling Savior King willingly made himself an outcast in order to make his people inside us was God. We couldn't get the... We didn't have a... We didn't have an inn. We didn't have somebody who could recommend us who was holy, perfect, and pure. What we do now for those who are in Christ. You know, we tend to talk about becoming a Christian in terms of a decision we've made or a ritual we've experienced. But the Bible speaks of the reality that saves us, secures us, and sustains us primarily in the terms of being united with Christ. That's what makes the difference. And that's what Matthew was trying to get across to us, that in Christ, the ruling Savior King could make this all happen. Praise be to God.